The amount of money we spend as Americans on holidays determine the significance of the holiday, then Christmas would be about 40 times more important to Americans than Easter. A couple years ago, we spent a little over $630 billion on Christmas and a little over $16 billion on Easter celebrations. I mean, really, if we went around the room and took a poll, you know, how many of us have Easter budgets that are equal with our Christmas budgets? How many of us spend as much time and energy to celebrate Easter as we do at Christmas? How many of us have decorations up in our yard, in our house at Easter time that we have at Christmas? I mean, Christmas even gets a better mythical figure that you can redeem to some degree because he's a guy who loves kids and brings presents to them. And at Easter, all we get is this stupid bunny. I mean, all you can do with a bunny is just eat it. And so there's a big difference in how we celebrate these two holidays in America. Theologically, there is great significance to what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, the coming of Christ. This is huge. Like, I don't want to pit these against each other. But if we're going to expend X amount of energy to celebrate the incarnation, the coming of Christ at Christmas, then we should celebrate the work of Christ at Easter in exponentially greater ways. The incarnation is important. Jesus had to come. But it's only significant because of Easter, what he came to do. You can't just leave the baby at the manger where he's not offensive. You have to bring him to Calvary and to the empty tomb where he accomplished the purpose and work of God. We've been walking through all of the significant events leading up to the cross over the last nine weeks. And you can go back and listen to those on our website or podcast His triumphal entry, his anointing for burial, his uh, Passover meal with his disciples, his institution of communion, the Lord's Supper, his time in the garden where he's fully submitting to the will of his father in anguish and pain, his betrayal by Judas, his abandonment by his disciples, his arrest and illegal trials, and his eventual, uh, as we saw last Sunday, being put on the cross at the demands of the Jewish religious leaders, at the demands of the people, at the demands of Pilate in his tradition to release a prisoner, and at Roman law, and most of all, at the requirement of a holy God and the sinfulness of humanity. He's put on a cross. Leading to today, where Jesus dies and is buried and provides access to God and the opportunity for saving faith. For all people who would see, hear, and believe in him. Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamai sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to him and take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Father, we are grateful what we are reading today, what it means to us, what you are accomplishing. All of human history centers on this moment, this time. And that you would accomplish this perfectly according to your will, that we here 2,000 years later would read it and know that it happened and it changes our life every day. Father, come. Spirit, come and accomplish in us the work necessary to make us a people who live out the reality of a crucified and risen Savior. Father, I confess my inadequacies and my dependency on you and pray that you would overcome those and accomplish your work in Jesus name amen as we have walked through this portion of Mark and leading up to this time up until now everything that we have seen has been pretty straightforward from the scourging of Jesus the beating him basically to a bloody pulp was common what they would do with 
criminals who were convicted of, of a crime deserving of death, uh, having Jesus carry his cross beam out to Golgotha, Calvary, and then placing him on the cross. This has all been pretty straightforward until now. At the sixth hour, 12 noon, when all of a sudden there is darkness over the whole land. Every, efforts to explain this away as an eclipse of the sun fail. Because eclipses of the sun, solar eclipses where the moon comes between uh, the earth and the sun, only happen at, at new moons. And Passover occurred at full moons. To explain this as an eastern wind, a sriracha wind that would blow up basically a sandstorm to cover the sun, fail because at this time of the year those winds don't occur. This is a supernatural darkening of the sun. God flipped the switch. And if you can't imagine, and I can't, all of a sudden it going dark right now, you can imagine how terrifying it was for those who were there. This is very similar to Exodus chapter 10, when in the ninth plague against Egypt, God calls there to be darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. Not in the land of Goshen, where God's people lived, but just as judgment against the Egyptians, where the Egyptians lived. So dark, they could not see their hand in front of their face. That's how deep and thick the darkness was. God's sovereignly in control over creation. God who made everything from nothing can just as easily as he called everything into existence out of nothing can hide the light of the sun for a period of time in a certain part of the world as he pleases. Just done. There's no scientific explanation for this. But, but guess what? Science is not the, the be-all, end-all. As much as I love science, as much as I enjoy science, I taught science in school before I became a pastor, I teach science to my girls today, uh, science is limited. And what makes a miracle a miracle, what makes something supernatural is that it occurs outside of the realm of the natural. It occurs outside of the realm of what science can explain. Most of the time, everything operates according to the laws of nature and the laws of the universe that God put into motion when he created everything. And that, that's why science came into being to begin with, because we can study things that are predictable and that are dependable and that operate according to laws. But there are times where God steps outside of that realm and does things that only God can do, and this is one of those times. However God did it, he did it. And more than trying to figure out how he did it, we should be concerned about why he did it. And it wasn't God's, like I used to think when I was a kid, God was just angry at everybody for the way they treated his son. So he's just going to scare everybody. What actually is happening is this is a picture of God's judgment. God's judgment on his son. Because his son was absorbing the sins of humanity. His son was facing the wrath of his father. And just as darkness was a judgment against the Egyptians, Amos 8.9 says, On about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This is judgment and wrath of God falling on sin. It just so happens that those sins are on His Son. Which leads us to what Jesus said in verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are seven statements of Jesus from the cross. It's a popular sermon series that churches will do sometimes leading up to Easter. They're all important. Mark only records specifically this one. And on one hand, Jesus is implementing a very, implementing a very common teaching tool of rabbis where rabbis would quote the opening line of a psalm. In other words, they were alluding to the entire psalm by just quoting the opening stanza from that psalm. Jesus is doing the same thing. And he's invoking Psalm 22 when he quotes the opening words of Psalm 22. Verse 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And as you move further into this psalm that was written uh, several hundred years before the events at Calvary, just as when Kendrick read Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Christ. And in Isaiah 53, the, the song of the suffering servant, you see so many details that Jesus fulfilled, that he had no control over. Things that were happening to him. Things that he could just make happen, make people do certain things. And here we see in Psalm 22, so many details. Psalm 22, 6 through 8, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. 
All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The mocking and the scorn he received on the cross. Verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When that psalm was written, crucifixion was not an instrument of death yet. But Jesus is also crying out in anguish at the reality of his situation. This is the first time in the existence of God, who has always existed, that the Father has forsaken the Son. The Father has turned His back on His Son. Think about it. Before anything was created, there was God. Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect fellowship, perfect relationship. Fully, completely fulfilled, needing nothing. God was perfect, glorious, majestic in every way in and of himself. He he did not need to create anyone to fulfill himself as God, but he chose to create. He chose to call into existence everything and to set in motion a plan of creation, a plan that would include the, the, the rebellion of mankind, the pinnacle of creation, a plan that would include the redemption of mankind, a plan that would include he himself coming down, taking on flesh to provide that redemption. A plan that would one day be the the fulfillment of his redemption plan when all things would be made new and restored. God chose to do these things so that through this incredible plan of creation and redemption and reconciliation and the fall, God would be fully glorified, fully magnified. We would see all the aspects of God's glory and attributes. We would see His power and His might and His holiness and His righteousness and His justice. We would see His creativity and His love and His mercy and His grace. We would see it all accomplished in creation so that all of creation that He has made would forever go on with the Lord worshiping Him, enjoying Him, being delighted in Him. And that part of this plan would include a day would include a day outside the walls of Jerusalem where the Father would have to turn His back on the Son for the first time and the only time ever. Because the Son was taking on Himself the sins of His people. The Father would have to forsake Him God is holy. Sin separates us from God. From Adam and Eve who first sinned and were cut off from God to every human being born in their sins and trespasses, being born in a state of being cut off from God. So His own Son, when the sins of His people were laid on Him, the Father had to look away. The Son is now cut off. The Son is now judged, even though He was sinless. Tim Keller puts it like this. This forsakenness, this loss, was between the Father and the Son who had loved each other for all of eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the dance. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Because Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question. And the answer is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us instead fell on Jesus. And the people around him, they don't know or understand all of this. They think when he's calling out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, he's calling Elijah to come and rescue him. Elijah went straight to heaven without dying, one of only two men in the scriptures, along with Enoch in Genesis 5, who had that happen to them. So maybe Elijah will come down in his chariot of fire and he'll pick Jesus up and take him to heaven. And they offer him this, this wine. Maybe they really cared about him. More likely they were mocking him. Let's keep him alive to suffer longer and maybe Elijah will show up. 
And then in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. I've been in the room with probably, I don't keep track of this, but I think maybe half a dozen people who literally breathed their last. Both of my grandmothers and Jennifer's grandfather. And some other people I've pastored or been their hospice chaplain. Been in the room with, with many, many more who were in their last hours of life. And I've never seen anyone breathe their last like that. Never. I think every single person I've been in the room with were, were non-responsive. They basically were sleeping. And John records that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. Mark just records a loud cry in his last breath. Remember, when you die on the cross, you're dying from suffocation, asphyxiation. You're losing the ability to breathe because of the weight of your body hanging there. Where does the strength and the energy and the breath come from for Jesus to do this in his last breath? And I think the best understanding is this. This is Jesus at the very end of his life, again, exerting his sovereign providence over death. He's not dying simply as a natural result of the beatings and floggings and suffocation of hanging on the cross. He's not slowly whimpering out like we see in all the Jesus movies. Just slowly fading until he's dead. Jesus is in his last breath choosing when he dies. Declaring his sovereignty over every aspect of his death. The centurion, we're going to spend time on him later on, sees this and in, in, in the way Jesus breathed his last was the most influential thing in him coming to faith in Christ. He's seen a lot of guys die. He's never seen anybody die like that. Not to mention Pilate being surprised in verse 44 that Jesus was already dead. Considering that throughout the Gospels, Jesus was exerting his sovereignty over every aspect of his life, especially his death. Considering the strength he's shown that even the refusal of the wine and myrrh we, we talked about last week. He wanted to be cognitively aware of every aspect of his suffering. And this final strong call, I think this is Jesus choosing to lay down his life. I'm dying now. Death is still not winning. I'm choosing to die. Again, not just caught up in the plans and schemes of other men, but even in his last breath, I'm laying down my life, submitting to the will of my Father. I'm dying for these sinners, how and when I choose to die. And just so everybody knows, my last breath will be a victorious breath, not a conquered breath. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We're going to come back to verse 38 and 39, but let's see what happens after he dies. Look at verse 40. There were also women looking on from the distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Jesus is being watched by some women, his followers. This will be significant when Sunday gets here, so I'll save that for Easter Sunday. But women were incredibly significant to the life and ministry of Jesus in the early church. Jesus elevated women far beyond what position they had currently at that time in society. It's a huge misconception in Christianity that Christianity is so patriarchal and male-dominated that women are trapped and beaten down and not unleashed to flourish. And it couldn't be further from the truth. It's another sermon for another day, but Jesus had a love and a ministry for women that allowed them to flourish as the only one who created women, women could do. They were important. 
significant. And these women named by Mark, women who had been changed by Jesus, were watching. They wanted to help, but it wasn't time. Their time comes next week. But what needs to happen, according to Jewish law, is Jesus' body needs to be buried before Sunday. Actually, before sundown. Jesus dies around 3. Sundown is at 6. It's the, it's the Sabbath. They don't have a, a ton of time. Normally, when someone dies on the cross, their bodies would be left on the cross to uh, just decompose, be eaten, scavenged by animals, or maybe some people will come along and care enough to take them down. It was strictly up to the, 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 the determination of other local magistrate to allow someone to take someone's body off the cross. He didn't have to allow them. Sometimes a criminal would have a family who would care about them. The Jews especially cared about bodies being taken down off the cross and buried with honor, dignity, and respect. That goes all the way back to the Old Testament law. They had written into the Old Testament law a dignity, a, a love of life, to care for people through all of life, even past life, into death. Let's honor this body that God gave them and created them with, and let's bury it the right way. Now, where is Mary? She might be exhausted. She's nowhere to be seen at this point. His mother, the disciples are hiding in locked rooms. They think that they're next. So who's going to handle this for Jesus? Shockingly, it was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, who had just hours before conducted an illegal trial to condemn him as a blasphemer so that he could die. But now there's a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who saw beyond the false accusations and saw in Christ one who would fulfill the coming kingdom of God that he was hoping for. It's not coincidental that you have the confession of a Roman centurion's faith in Christ at the end of Jesus' life. And it's not coincidental that the last interaction of Jesus with the Jewish religious establishment was one of faith and hope. That there's still hope for the Jews. Look at Joseph. He sees Jesus. He believes in Jesus. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, took courage. Not an easy request. And he goes and he asks for the body of Jesus. And what he wanted to do in this very limited time was to take his body off the cross to wash it according to their customs and to wrap it in this linen cloth and then place it in a tomb. There will be time for more elaborate spices and anointings that would accompany a burial. Usually that would have to wait until after the Sabbath. Or so they thought. The body would be taken to a nearby tomb that would be carved out of a rock quarry Usually a tomb would have some kind of opening. We know Jesus did because the disciples later on, on on Easter Sunday, they would have to stoop down to look into the tomb. So no, there was a small opening that you had to go into. When you went into this room, there would be several, um, you might think of it like rock bunk beds, several uh, openings in the rock that had been carved out where, where two, three, four, five, six bodies could be laid. And they would lay the bodies in there until the bodies decomposed. And when all the flesh had decomposed, the bones would be left. They would take the bones and place it inside of an ossuary box, a bone box, that the family would then keep forever. This is what happened to everyone who died. It's what they thought was going to happen to Jesus. So they're trying to get this plan in motion and take care of his body. Now what's important to notice is that along with Joseph of Arimathea, you also have Pilate and the centurion, all three affirming that Jesus really died. He's dead. This is incredibly important. The fact that Jesus died and was buried became part of the early church's confession of faith concerning the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You can't leave out the fact that he was buried. It's part of the early eyewitness testimony. Because when they began to go around saying he's alive, no, 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 no. I saw where he was buried. Let's go look. All right, let's go look. It's empty. No one took his body and hid it. He was buried in a well-known tomb so that when his followers began to proclaim this, everyone could go to the tomb and see that it was empty. The stone has been rolled away. What's the best explanation for that? And you walk through all the various theories that have been passed out through the years, and they're all ridiculous. Jesus didn't really die. He just passed out and he came back to life in the tomb. Or Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. Or Jesus was eaten by wild dogs. The easiest and most plausible explanation is what's recorded in Scripture. 
There really was a day about 2,000 years ago where a man from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, was executed by the Romans as a criminal, was taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, real people, and his body was laid in a tomb, and on the third day he walked out. Really happened. Our faith is not rooted in ideas. Our faith is rooted in history. Things that actually happened and eyewitnesses saw it and we keep passing it down from generation to generation. The significance of the death and burial of Jesus Christ cannot be overstated. You you cannot say enough about it. Like my, My struggle this week was not what to say. It was, I can't say everything. I would be there all day. There's too much to talk about. This is the fulfillment of the gospel of Mark, the fulfillment of the ministry of Jesus. Mark said this in Mark 10, 45, for even, Jesus actually said this about himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came, to die. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wait, I read Paul's letters. He talks about a lot of stuff. What do you mean, I desire to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? It wasn't that that was the only thing Paul talked about. It was that everything was flowing from the cross and back to the cross, influenced by the cross. Because it is the difference maker in our faith. He would say in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only thing I can boast about, Paul says. That He would die for me. John Stott said this, The Christian community is a community of the cross. For it has been brought into being by the cross. And the focus of its worship is the Lamb once slain, now glorified. Jerry Bridges, Bridges, another good author. If we want proof of God's love for us, then we must first look at the cross, where God offered up His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. Does God love me? Look at the cross. Alexander McLaren. The cross is the center of the world's history. The incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of our Lord are the pivot around which all events of the ages revolve. John Piper. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is impossible to overemphasize the cross. You can't talk about it enough. In fact, John Piper has a, a, a free book you can download, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I could just read that book to you this morning. Thought about it. And it still wouldn't be enough. So let's go back to verses 38 and 39 and look at the two ramifications that Mark included since we're, we've been walking through Mark's gospel for about a year. Verse 38 and 39. After Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. First, in the temple curtain being torn in two, we we see access. Access to God. We get this concept of access. Just fly on a plane. Here's where you belong, and here's where you don't belong. You're allowed here, you're not allowed there. When we flew back from China several years ago, uh, the, the girl, that, Amy, who, who I met a few weeks ago, um, was taking us to the airport. She talked to the person who was checking us in, had a conversation I didn't understand. We get on the plane, and me and the guy I was with were bumped up to business class. First time ever. We're like, what's going on? Look at us. Big, comfortable seats and free snacks on this three- to four-hour flight. And we were just giddy. And then we began to get really giddy because we were thinking, man, what if she bumped us up on that 12-hour flight? Like, this is going to be amazing. And we weren't. <laughs> because our Savior had limits, our earthly Savior. But she, we enjoyed the benefits of access. Something we did not deserve, we did not pay for. Someone else did all the work to give us this access. 
And we were incredibly grateful for a little bit, a few more inches of leg room and head room and a few snacks that filled our bellies for a little while. How much more grateful are we are, should we be for Jesus and the access that he's given us? In tearing the veil of the temple, Jesus has done all the work necessary for us to belong and have access to God. This is more than likely describing this large, high, thick curtain that surrounded the innermost holy spot in the temple of Jerusalem. A place where even the high priest would only go one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Supernaturally, miraculously, this thick curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, which only God could have done. Showing all people that now there is access to him. We see this further elaborated in Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A chapter later, Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Daily, 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 the priests stood and they worked and they worked and they worked. And here's offerings and here's offerings and here's sacrifices and here's sacrifices. And they never took away the sins of the people. They just covered them over. Until one day came the Lamb of God, whom John the Baptist said, takes away the sins of the world. Doesn't just cover them over, he takes them away. Through his one single sacrifice, he offers himself and that's it. No more sacrifices. In the temple, around the Holy of Holies, there's no chair to sit down because the priest always has to stand and work. Jesus accomplishes his sacrifice and it says he sat down. The work is done. It is finished. There's nothing else to do to accomplish the eternal sanctification, redemption, and salvation of God's people, all who are covered by his blood. He's done all that is necessary and now through this sacrifice, We have access to God. We have a way back. What one sin in the garden cut us off from, one perfect sacrifice on the cross brought us back to. This is Calvary. The final sacrifice has been made. And we have access. We get to be God's people permanently and eternally dwelt by the Spirit of God. Christ who died to provide this access is about to rise and ascend and send the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who would permanently indwell God's people, the church. So access to God through Christ in the Spirit of God would be constant and continuous. Guys, this was a new thing. This is not what the Holy Spirit did before this day, before Pentecost, before the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come on people, fill them to accomplish a work, and then leave them. This is why David in Psalm 51, after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he prayed, take not your Holy Spirit from me, because God could. It happened to Saul. Now in the church, the new covenant, if you are born again, born from above, you are made a child of God. You receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, dwells in you. The third person of the Trinity takes up residence in this imperfect temple. The temple is no longer a brick and mortar structure in Jerusalem. The temple is now the people of God. You no longer go to a place to encounter the presence of God. You go to a people, the church. And God doesn't ask everybody to come to this place in Jerusalem. He sends his people to the nations with his spirit, with his word, to go be the hands and feet of God and Christ to the nations. 
This is new. This is different. This is not how things worked until this point. Jesus is accomplishing a new work. Which means if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you always have access to the Father. Always. Not just on your good days. Not just on today because you're sitting in a worship gathering. Not just when you've done well and I've read my Bible today and I've obeyed well. Always. Anytime you cry out for help. Anytime you cry out for forgiveness and cleansing. Anytime you call on Jesus for strength and courage. You always, always, always have access. You're never cut off. He always hears you. His eyes and ears are always toward you. He turned his back on his son so that he would forever face his people and be their God. I can't tell you how many times I'm headed into a situation where I need the Spirit of God to help me. Help me in this counseling situation or or help me going into this this home to visit a hospice patient. You're you're in the valley of the shadow of death with this family. You you fail to know what to say to help be helpful. Help me in this gospel opportunity to share the gospel with somebody or to hold someone accountable. And calling out to the, the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, I need you right now. I am inadequate to do this. I need you to fill me and give me words and confidence and everything I need to accomplish your purposes in this, this person's life. And there was a time in my, in my Christian walk where I really struggled with that. Because I, I, based it, I based my confidence and I thought my access to God on my performance. So if I was doing good and having a good day, I was full of confidence. Because look at what I had done. But if I was having a bad day, I had repented of sin, I was struggling, I would go into situations and not have confidence. Because I didn't feel like I had access. I didn't feel like I could call on him. I didn't know that he would come. And God graciously has brought me to a a point where I see all the time that my access is not rooted in my performance. It's rooted in the performance of Christ. Therefore, I always have access. Even in my most weak moments, I can call out and the Spirit of God is there and hears. I have access to the throne room of God to give me grace that I need in, in the time of need. And he hears and he comes. He is so faithful to come all the time. He comes and he equips and he helps and he fills and he strengthens and he convicts and he encourages and he washes me anew and afresh. And all these things are experienced, not because I'm amazing, but because Jesus is amazing. And he's accomplished everything to give us that access. You're never cut off from him. You have access all the time. Another way to think about it is this. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. And then the end of Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ? Well-known passage. The, the, the final answer is nothing. You're never cut off from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. If he didn't spare his own son, verse 29, will he not give all good things to his children, to those who are redeemed? You're never cut off from God's love for you. Don't continue to run and hide in your sins and think you don't belong. You don't have to hide in nakedness and shame in the garden. You don't have to punish yourself. Jesus was punished for you. You don't have to be ashamed of yourself. He was shamed for you. Even at your worst, you have access to God the Father through his son Jesus. Run to him. He wants you to run to him. Come to him. He wants you to come to him all the time. Be with your father in heaven. And maybe this morning you're realizing for the first time this has never been your reality. If you've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never truly believed in him and come alive in Christ. So you lived your life up until this point cut off. And today is the day of your salvation because Christ is coming. And the Spirit of God is coming and speaking to you this morning and helping you to see the beauty of Jesus. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Turn from your sins to Jesus and come alive in Christ. And for the rest of your days until your dying breath, you have access to your Father in heaven through Christ. 
If it could happen for this Roman centurion, it could happen for you. And that's the, the second thing we see. The temple veil is torn so we have access. And this access is available for anyone and everyone who would see and believe in Jesus as the crucified Son of God. Again, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Mark's gospel begins in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here we are at the end. Jesus is now dead. And the first human confession in Jesus as the Son of God comes from the lips of the most unlikely convert. A Roman centurion, a commander over a hundred men, grizzled, hardened man of war. Who knows how many people have died at his hands? Who knows how many people he has watched die as a part of this crucifixion detail? But as the text said, there was something in the way Jesus died that captivated his heart and allowed him to see beyond just a man dying to this greater reality that this man was and is the Son of God. Maybe in the way he cried out in strength as he died, maybe in the way he cried out, my God, my God, as he is being forsaken, Jesus is not cursing God, but calling out in faith to God, in trust to God. Whatever it was, however the Spirit used it, he saw the reality of Christ and believed. And guys, this is the essence of saving faith. To see the historical details contained in the gospel about this man, Jesus. He definitely was born. He lived. He did all these amazing works, miracles, and teachings. He definitely died on the cross. He was, uh, not because he was a sinner, but in the place of sinners, he definitely was buried, definitely rose from the dead. And to all who see these historical details from these eyewitness accounts and see beyond just an historical story, but see a Savior who is alive and who is active and who is moving and speaking and saving today, that this salvation is not just available to the people who lived then. Blessed are those who saw him and believed, Jesus said to Thomas, the doubter. But blessed more are those who have not seen and believed. That this is alive, that this gospel still goes forward and is changing lives in this room, in this city, and in the nations. That is the essence of saving faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the, mouth, the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It, it doesn't make sense. How can I just believe something and say something and be changed forever? No, it doesn't make sense. Except in God's economy. In God's kingdom, it makes sense. Because he said that's how it's going to be. With words, he called everything into existence. And with words, we confess and believe and come alive in Christ as he saves us and changes us and accomplishes his purposes in us. Now, obviously, he couldn't confess that Jesus rose from the dead yet, but he confessed faith and belief in what he knew up until that point. Just like the thief on the cross, just like Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus is saving people up into and even beyond his dying breath and has been doing that for 2,000 years. And God seems to specialize in saving those who we would think are least likely to save. All through the Gospels, we see this. Jesus chose these 12 disciples who were not cream of the crop gods. They've been rejected from the rabbinical schools. They were working blue-collar fishermen. And Jesus says, you're going to be the foundation of the church. You're going to be the first eyewitnesses and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To women that he called, many of them out of sinful lifestyles, it was scandalous for a rabbi to be followed around by women. To the thief on the cross who at one point was ridiculing Jesus and then later confessed faith in Jesus. To Joseph of Arimathea, part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, who hours before had the illegal trial and condemned Jesus to death. To this Roman centurion who confesses Jesus as the Son of God. It's like sometimes we evaluate people before we pursue them with the gospel. Do we really think they're going to believe? Should I invest this time and energy in them? But the New Testament paints a picture of indiscriminately casting the seed of the gospel to anyone and everyone because anyone can hear, believe, and come alive in Christ Jesus at any time. Do we really believe this? Do you really believe this? That this crucified Savior is still saving today and desiring to save people in your life, people in our city, 
people in Europe where we're going in, in June. People in other places in summer camps that you're going to be working in this summer. If we really believe this, then our lives will be marked by engaging people far from God in a relationship to show them the reality of the gospel in our lives and then to declare the truth of the gospel with our lips with the hope that Christ will make them alive. We can't just be nice and think they're going to catch the gospel like a cold or a flu. If we're just around them long enough and are nice to them, it'll just kind of ooze off of us onto them. We can't just be amazing and think that they're going to draw the proper conclusion that we're awesome because of Jesus. And so I need Jesus too. Number one, we're not that awesome. Number two, there's a hundred different reasons why you might be awesome when you are temporarily awesome. People in our lives who are lost and far from God, who need a genuine relationship with Jesus, need us to declare the gospel to them. To speak the gospel to them. There are a hundred ways that we could walk through the gospel, but we have to declare the crucified and risen Son of God in Jesus Christ. The fact and reality that this happened, why it happened, that Jesus lived the life that we fell at and died the death that we should have died. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21 Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We are ambassadors of that message. We are created in Christ Jesus and sent to declare this message to anyone and everyone in our lives that's far from God. It's hard. Everybody in this room struggles with it. Everyone in this room is is afraid and scared and fearful. But I thought that we already established that we have access to God. The God who spoke everything into existence. The God who has the ultimate power in the universe. And I thought that as a son and a daughter of this God, we have access to that power. Ephesians 1, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So yes, it is hard and it's difficult, but we have access to everything we need to accomplish it. And I can tell you that it's, it's walking out the obedience to the commands and call of your life in Christ is when you really discover the power of God in you. In other words, if you're just going to make your life the same as everyone else's life, if you're just going to struggle through your marriage and struggle through your parenting like everybody else in your marriage and parenting is just an ongoing dumpster fire, if you're going to struggle as an employee to get through your job, you've got to get through another week to get to the weekend, then I can really have fun. If you're just going to struggle to, to, to have the same relationship to food and entertainment that everybody else has so that we're living for the next show to drop on Netflix, we're living for the next Marvel movie, we're living for the next delicious meal that we can put in our faces, we're living for vacations, we're living for fun times. If you're just going to live the life that everybody else lives, then you don't need the power of God. You don't need it. Just struggle like everybody else struggles. But if your life is going to be a life lived out in obedience to the commands of God, if you're going to give your life away selflessly, sacrificially, so that other people can come alive in Christ Jesus, if I'm going to live my life to lay up treasures in heaven so my job is not just my job, but an opportunity to glorify God in everything that I do and build relationships with people to get them to Christ, If you're going to live your life saying no to sin, saying yes to righteousness, you will need access to the power of God and it's available in abundance, all that you need. And that's where you really experience the power of God. Just walking out the simple commands that He's given us to walk out every day. Being a husband who loves and serves his wife selflessly, lovingly, so she flourishes impossible in your own power, but very possible with the power of God flowing through you. Being a parent who doesn't just control their kids so they act the way they're supposed to act and make you look good, but being a parent who shepherds the hearts of your children so that when they're out of your home, they love and pursue Jesus as much as you have the ability to to oversee that. 
possible in your own strength. Very possible in the power of God flowing through you. If we're going to live that kind of life, we need the power of God. If we are going to be a people that spread the gospel into every nook and cranny of this city, and that helps spread the gospel to the nations in places like we're in, in Europe where we're going in June, we have to have the power of God, or we will fail. We are completely dependent on God's power to accomplish this. And Jesus has come and died and rose and has given us access to this power just by us believing, trusting, repenting of sin and following Him. That's it. You don't have to memorize the Bible. You don't have to jump through religious hoops. It's just repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus. And the power comes. And all of a sudden you start doing things. You're like, well, that's new. I didn't do that before. I used to get mad in that situation, and I'm not mad at that situation. If we're going to follow Christ, as he said in Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You're going to have to have a power outside of yourself. And Jesus came and lived to make that power possible to us, available to us, accessible to us, so that we as his people, that he would save us, that he would save us and send us so that other people in our city would see Jesus and come alive in Jesus. That's why we're here. That's what this is about. It's not just about having a good Sunday service so we can pat ourselves on the back. Check, we did church today. It's about being a people sent, sent with the gospel to the people who are far away from God all over this world. And he gives us everything we need to do that. Father, we're so grateful. So grateful for your grace that you would save us, that you would redeem us and make us your people, that you would give us the ability to know you and love you and live for you despite all of our failures and our brokenness and our sins. Your mercies are new every morning. Your grace is available today just as it has been for 2,000 years. And I pray for everyone in this room, wherever we need to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus again, let us do that today. Change us. Save us. Give us a a fresh renewal of devotion to you because of Jesus and what he's done. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.